So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father even, God. Jesus said to them, if you were, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Father, please um, help us now um, as I uh, preach your word that we would uh, know more of Jesus, that we would know the truth that sets us free. Amen. Uh, I'm going to add my welcome as well to those of 
others who've been up already. My name's Giles. I'm also one of the church family here, and it is a joy to be able to uh, come before you with God's word this morning. I have a question for you. Are you a believer? That's what I'd like us to consider today as we continue the series through um, John 8 to 12. Are you a believer? Now, last week, um, verses 12 to 30, uh, Jesus says he's the light and we need him. And so the question was, do we believe him? Do we trust what he says? And it seemed in verse 30 that many did, many believed in him. And here we are in verse 31, as Jesus follows up that conversation with those who had believed in him. What does it mean to be truly his disciples? Are you a believer? Are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Now, for some of you, the answer is obvious. Yes, I know and love Jesus. Maybe you can remember when you first put your trust in him. Maybe you've been a member of the church for many years. For some of you, maybe the answer is a definite no. Um, You're here because someone asked you to come or because you're interested in, in finding out more. But for now, you wouldn't say you're a believer. In fact, everything I've just said about knowing Jesus and loving him and trusting him, about him being the light, that's all a little bit weird. Or or maybe you're not sure. Uh, Maybe you'd like to be a believer, but you you think you don't measure up. Or, Or maybe you think you're a believer. You remember a time when it was all very real for you. But now that light seems a bit dim. Am I a believer? And it's a question that John, the writer of this passage, wants us all to ask ourselves too. At the end of his book, John tells us why he wrote it in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It should be on the screen. It is on the screen. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. If we believe, we have life. We heard last week Jesus' claim that if we we don't believe in him, we will die in our sins, back in verse 24. It's, It's a claim we need to take really seriously. If we don't believe in Jesus, we need to. And if we do believe in him, Do we really? John is careful to warn us that belief can be false. A superficial belief. Something that we we like about Jesus, but not wholehearted commitment to all that he is and says. A superficial belief that doesn't save us from death, doesn't bring life and light. Back at the end of of chapter 2, John told us that that many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew them, and he knew their belief wasn't real. 
And here we are in chapter 8, and again, people seem to believe. But John wants us to ask, is, is this real? Is this the sort of belief that brings life, or are they missing something? And Jesus devastatingly exposes their belief as inadequate, superficial, false. And they're fatally wrong in two main ways. They don't know themselves, and they don't know Jesus. And that's what I'd like us to consider this morning. Uh, two questions. Do we know who we are? Uh, do we know who Jesus is? So firstly, do, do we know who we are? Do we know what our nature is? Uh, do we know the predicament that we're in without Jesus? Um, look down at verse 32. Jesus has just told them that if they're truly his disciples, if they're really believers, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. They'll be free. Our culture loves freedom. We, we want to be free, to do what we want. On, on the other side of, of Europe, Ukrainians know they are not free, and they long for freedom. Slaves in the southern USA knew the brutal, awful reality of slavery. Freedom was everything. But the response Jesus gets in verse 33 is desperately sad and deeply ironic. It's so ironic because the descendants of Abraham had been enslaved by pretty much every major power in the region over the last 1,500 years. So, so perhaps they mean when they say, we've never been enslaved, they mean they're spiritually free. Un unlike those pagans in bondage to false idols, the Jews claimed unique access to the true God. They, they had the promises that God gave to Abraham. They had the law that God gave to Moses. They had the temple, the prophets. They think that because Abraham is their ancestor, they alone are free to hear God's word and come before him as his people. But it's so sad because they've got themselves so wrong. They see no need to be set free because they think they're free already. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus pulls the rug from under their feet. You're slaves because you're sinners. Sin is slavery. It's not freedom. Sin is our rebellion against God. It's, it's our innate desire to think and do things our way and not God's. It doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, who our ancestor is. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. It grips us. It enslaves us. I once had a patient uh, with rabies. Uh, it starts innocuously enough. Uh, a few weeks after being bitten, fever, headache. You could shrug it off as a bit of flu. Nothing that a few paracetamol couldn't help with. But then comes the paranoia, the confusion, 
the paralysis. And the patient is gripped by terror, especially of water. He can't move freely. He can't think freely. And there's nothing he can do about it. Maybe we think of sin as just a little thing. The occasional bad thing we do. Nothing I can't sort out. But Jesus is saying it's not a little thing. It's an enslaving thing. It grips it. It takes you over. It's impossible to break free from. It's not just the, the obvious spirals that people fall into with addictive behaviors. It's sort of getting further and further into gambling or pornography. Maybe it's our, our lack of concern for the poor. Maybe it's our prayerlessness. What starts as occasional becomes a habit, becomes our character, living for ourselves rather than for God and others, is, is what by nature drives all of us, controls all of us. That's a slavery to sin. Do we know that we need to be set free? So I think Jesus' listeners, they would have accepted that they sinned, They knew they had the the temple sacrifices to atone for those sins, but they wouldn't have seen themselves as sinners, enslaved to sin. And for Jesus to say that's true of everyone who sins, that's to lump them in with the Roman idol worshippers. How deeply offensive that must have been. But it gets worse. It's not just that they're slaves to sin like everyone else, but Jesus even challenges challenges their privileged relationship with God. They thought their place in God's household was secure. They're the chosen people, God's family. They thought they were sorted. But Jesus says a slave has no permanent residence, no right of abode. And verse 35, they can be dismissed without notice, sold off, exchanged on a whim, or worse. What about us? Do we ever fall into the way of thinking these people had, relying on our our heritage or our customs. I come from a Christian family. I was baptized. I've been a regular part of the church for years. I'm a member of the PCC. None of those things frees us from sin. None of those gives us residency in God's kingdom. Do we understand how, how gripped we are by nature, by our sin, that there's nothing about ourselves that can set us free. But Jesus, he doesn't stop there. He, he knows they're physically descended from Abraham, verse 37, but um, Abraham's not their real dad. He's their genetic ancestor, but he's not their spiritual father. If he was, they, they wouldn't be trying to kill Jesus for telling them the truth. That's not the sort of thing that Abraham did. No, that's the sort of thing their real father does. Twice, in in, in verse 38 and verse 41, Jesus suggests that their father isn't who they think he is. And so almost childishly, they hit back uh, with innuendo. Well, at least we weren't born of sexual immorality. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We all know the rumors that your mother was pregnant by someone else before she married Joseph. Who are you to lecture us about paternity? Anyway, even if you want to dismiss our heritage with Abraham, our ultimate father is God himself. Verse 41. What a claim. And what a 
total failure of self-understanding. But there's no going back from this. All their money's on the table, and they're about to lose the lot. Your father isn't Abraham or God, Jesus says to them. It's the devil himself. That's who you follow. That's why you behave the way you do. That's why you're liars and murderers. That's why you can't bear to hear the truth, because your heart is only at home in falsehood, because you're not of God. Now, we probably wouldn't give Jesus an award for tactful diplomacy. If, um, if we were running a discipleship course for new believers, this probably isn't where we would go in week one. But Jesus wants them to understand just how awful sin is, where it comes from and the effects it has. They desperately need to recognize their need to be freed from the slavery of sin and the sonship of Satan. Because if, if they don't, it gets even worse. If they're not set free, it will kill them. My patient with rabies gripped by that mental and, and physical paralysis was helpless. There's no cure, and as always with rabies, he died. Sin enslaves, and sin will kill. Jesus has told them this in verses 21 and 24. If you don't believe, you'll die in your sin. Now remember, Jesus is saying, saying all this to, to those who had believed in him. It's deliberately shocking. John is warning us not to believe like they did. He wants to make sure our belief is not false. Whoever we are, whatever our background, we need to know who we are and just how dreadful things are for us without Jesus. We are by nature utterly sinful. And the language here of slavery and the devil is extreme because it's so serious. If we, if we don't get this, we'll be in danger of thinking it's not so bad. I'm not so gripped. I can deal with this myself. And I may not see the need for, I may not long for the true freedom that only Jesus brings. So true belief knows who we are, just how bad our situation is without Jesus. And so how great our need our longing to be set free. And true belief knows who Jesus is, the one who frees us. So in the rest of the chapter, John asks us, do we know who Jesus is? Do we know who Jesus is? Have you um, ever been in one of those car crash situations where you're talking to someone you've just met and you're banging on about something, maybe uh, a book you thought was pretty bad or, or a restaurant where the food was awful, only to be embarrassed when your new friend tells you, gently, I'm the author. Uh, I'm the chef. But the irony here in, in chapter 8 is not enjoyable. It's terrifyingly tragic. Jesus is talking with them but they don't know who he is. He's not just a teacher or a miracle worker. He's so much greater than they can possibly imagine. 
They're trying to argue theology with him, and they don't realize that he's God himself. We've seen um, already in the first part of the passage that, that Jesus is the son who sets people free from sin, verse 36. That he tells people the truth that he's heard from God in verse 40. Or verse 42, he's from God and God sent him. Those are pretty big things to claim. And I guess it's just about possible that some of his listeners might have agreed that those might be true of a prophet. Someone specially sent by God to speak God's word, to, to bring them back to God. Even, even Jesus' hint in verse 38 that God is his father might have been acceptable, seeing as they say the same thing of themselves in verse 41. But they've responded throughout in, in sneering anger. Jesus has said they're, they're gripped by sin and lies, and therefore they can't believe the truth. And so they don't believe who he claims to be, verse 45. And in the rest of chapter 8, that the tension mounts as their accusations and insults get worse and Jesus' claims get even bigger. But look at verse 48. They say he's demonic and they throw in a racial slur for good measure. But Jesus' honor of his father God proves he, he can't be demonic because demons don't honor God. But their accusation is profoundly dishonoring, which is demonic, because dishonoring God is exactly what demons do. And they're just confirming what Jesus has said about them. They're following in the footsteps of their father, the devil. But then Jesus claims in verse 50 that even if they don't honor him, he'll be glorified anyway, not by them, but by the one whose honor really matters the judge, God himself, and that, and that their final judgment depends on their response to him. Life, if you follow Jesus, or as he said in verse 24, death, if you don't. So now Jesus is claiming to be glorified by God and to hold the keys of life and death in judgment. You can almost feel the rage. Now we know you have a demon. Even the greatest, Abraham, died, and all the prophets. Do you think you're greater than all of them? Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, Jesus is clear. He's not making himself out to be anything that God hasn't declared him to be. It's God the Father who glorifies him. He doesn't glorify himself. But even as his listeners persist in ratcheting up their denial and insults, Jesus doesn't back down. The, the God they claim as their own, they, they don't know him, but Jesus knows him intimately as his father. The Abraham they claim as their father, he rejoiced in looking forward to Jesus. You, you can imagine them almost lost for words at these claims. So huge, so offensive, and they seem so absurd. You're just a bloke here and now. How could you have known Abraham? Well, the crescendo is reaching its climax, this growing disbelief and anger and insults towards Jesus and the ever-increasing claims that Jesus has made about their sinfulness and his greatness. And finally, the bombshell. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. In, in Exodus 3, God 
revealed his name to Moses as, I am who I am. And Moses was to tell the people that I am had sent him to them. And the prophet Isaiah again and again uses this description of God. In chapter 41, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am. Chapter 43, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Now, our our Bibles often translate those passages, I am he. Just like earlier in John chapter 8, we saw last week in verses 24 and 28. But in all those places, it's the same expression as it is here. I am. Jesus, the Son of God, was there before Abraham. He was there before time itself. He is and always is. He is God himself. And in case we're in any doubt that that's what he meant to say to them, or in any doubt that that's what John wants us to understand, his listeners pick up stones to kill him. He told them they were sinners. Now he claims to be God. Uh, They knew only one response to ultimate blasphemy. He had to die. When these people hear who Jesus really is, they try to kill him. And so they prove what Jesus had said about them. They're doing the work of their father, the devil. They're trying to murder Jesus, the son of God. They're trying to kill God. And eventually, they will kill Jesus. It's at the cross where Jesus is is lifted up, verse 28, where it is most clear that he is, I am. And unless we believe, verse 24, that he is, I am, we too will die in our sins. Because what Jesus is telling his listeners here is what we need to hear too. We need to know who we are and who Jesus is. That without Jesus, we're slaves to sin, children of the devil, facing death and eternity without God. So we need to confess that sin and repent of it. And we need to trust humbly in our glorious God, Jesus, the Lord of life, who frees us from sin. What wonderful good news. The joy of people liberated, of slaves set free. That's what true believers enjoy. Real, joyful freedom from the slavery of sin, from the rule of the devil, from death itself. It's not that we won't sin again, but we will be free of the penalty of sin. We'll be free of eternal death. We'll have that eternal life that Jesus promises. And that life starts now. He breaks the power of sin in our lives. He frees us from its power, from its slavery, so that we no longer keep on sinning as we did before. We are God's children, not the devil's. And so, verse 42, we love Jesus, the one who saves us, if we believe in him. Are you a believer? We all believe in something. Is your belief the false sort, the sort that the people in this passage had, the sort that doesn't acknowledge our our own sinfulness or that Jesus is God? Or is our belief the true sort, the sort that by believing we have life in Jesus' name? Now, some of you might still not be convinced, so please don't take my word for it. Um, Take Jesus' word. And so that's my final sneaky extra third point. Uh, Apologies for those who thought 
you are now free. Keep going in Jesus' word. Keep going in Jesus' word. Some of you may have wondered why I kind of almost skipped over that in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. From the late uh, 1940s, people in the American film industry were, were asked, are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? And the idea was to root out Marxists from Hollywood. But of course, someone might have once been a member, even still be a member, and not actually believe in Marxism. The mark of a true disciple of Marx is that they follow the teachings of Marx. And a real believer of Jesus isn't just someone who is now or ever was a member of a church. It's someone who actually trusts in Jesus, who knows the truth that sets us free. And the mark of a true disciple of Jesus is that they follow the teaching of Jesus. If you abide in Jesus' word, if you live in it, keep going in it, you are truly his disciples. That means keeping on, hearing it, believing it, obeying it, guarding it. It's so important that Jesus keeps on stressing it in in these verses that we've read in different ways. So in verse 37, he shows us what happens if we don't keep going on in his word. That those Jews there wanted to kill him because his word found no place in them. Jesus wants us to live in his word and his word to live in us. It's a, it's a living dynamic relationship. We, we immerse ourselves in what he teaches us from the Bible and what he teaches should shape and fill our lives. In verse 43, they don't understand Jesus because they couldn't bear to hear his word. In 47, they don't hear God's word. In 51, Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. We're to keep his word just as Jesus keeps his father's word. Verse 55, which for Jesus means really knowing his father, intimate relationship with him, loving obedience. Now, Marxists think Marx was a great teacher, but they know he's not God. They might immerse themselves in Marx's books. His teaching might fill their minds and shape their actions, but they can never know Marx personally because Marx is dead. But Jesus is God, and Jesus is alive. And abiding in God's word isn't just about intellectually agreeing with some factual statements about Jesus. It's not just agreeing that Jesus seems like a good teacher or a holy prophet. It means knowing him. Knowing him as our God and saviour who rescues us from sin and death. Knowing this wonderful truth and keeping going in it. What does that look like as we keep on in the word, becoming more like the, the children of God that he wants us to be? It means never letting go of those two basics. We are sinners in need of rescue and Jesus is our God and rescuer. It means longing to listen to him as we as we read the Bible and hear it preached. It means being part of a church that faithfully teaches us God's word. It means letting his word shape our understanding of the world and our role in it. It means making our decisions according to God's will as he speaks to us in scripture, even when what he teaches is difficult, especially when what he teaches goes against what our culture teaches. We start in God's word. 
we go on in God's words. In the 1953 coronation, the Queen was given a Bible with the words, We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. It's in Jesus' words that we learn what he teaches about who we are and who he is. It's through his word that we're set free and learn to enjoy his freedom. It's through his word that his spirit gives us life and makes us children of God. It's in Jesus' word that we meet Jesus himself. Are you a believer? Jesus says, if you keep going in his word, you are truly his disciples. Uh, Let's pray. Father God, uh, please help us know who we are and who Jesus is. That we would keep in his words, know his truth, that we'd really know the wonderful freedom that he brings. Amen.